Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thank you for joining us. We have a packed show for you today. Ranging from Trump indictments to flood recovery and climate change, Vermont State University, and lots, lots more. Our main guest will be Vermont Secretary of State Sarah Copeland Hansis, here to discuss her views and experience on what climate change is doing here, how her office is registering contractors under a new law, and how her office is approaching flood recovery. She wrote out, commentary piece that appeared in Vermont media that called out the governor for his response to the flood. We'll get into it with uh, Secretary Hansis. We'll head to Washington, D.C. for our weekly chat with correspondent Bob Ney. As a Republican debate nears and the president's son, Hunter Biden, navigates the legal process, we will get Bob's take on the gravity of the latest indictment against Donald Trump, this time in Fulton County, Georgia. Ann Wallace-Allen from Seven Days will join us to discuss the ups and downs and the perilous future of the new Vermont State University, what most of us know as the state colleges. She spent last week visiting the campuses, and she'll give us an update. And lastly, we'll check in with Sarah DeFelice, the owner of Bailey Road, the home goods and clothing store in Montpelier. Flooded out and destroyed, she pivoted quickly to Northfield, to social media, and is rebuilding. And her story uh, will captivate you. As always, we hope you will join us with your questions and comments. The number to call is 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. It's good to have you all with us on the radio and online at wdevradio.com and on the free WDEV Radio app. And before I get into my Friday essay... We've got Fred from Newberry on the line. Fred, it's been a while. How are you? Oh, I'm better than average, I guess. I don't know. I had to I had to move from uh, from uh, Vermont down to uh, the Washington D.C. area because of my old age. But other than that, oh, hey, Kevin. Yes. Can you hear me, Kevin? I can oh, hear you, Kevin. Hey, Kevin, I, I, I'm out of radio range. So you, if you hang up on me, I won't. I won't get your comments. So you can't hang up on me. <laughs> so anyway, here's what, here's what my famous question is right here: Will Trump be considered one of the most famous or infamous presidents ever? I believe that your grandkids will be reading about Trump in the history books. Trump will not go into the trash heap of history. He will become a major, major major player in the future history of the United States. What say you? You know, I agree with you about that. Um, yeah, like it or not, he he has uh, changed the way we think about the democracy. Uh, he's changed the he is you know, he's ignored laws, regulations, and social mores. Uh, he made it normal to talk about porn stars and uh, payoffs and, um, and you know, talking about uh, gra- assaulting women, grabbing women by their private parts uh, on in public. Uh, he, for better or for worse, he's normalized that behavior. And our 
it seems to me that our political uh, system uh, was sort of caught by surprise and didn't understand and still doesn't understand how to deal with the, a character like that. And uh, we're watching it play out in real time. So, uh, Fred, I, I appreciate the call and the comment, and I wish you well. I'm glad you're in. Hey. I'm glad you're in Washington D.C. Kevin, Kevin. Yeah. Kevin. Okay. Here's here's the thing right here. If if president if the president goes is found guilty and goes into prison, do you think that would precipitate a civil war in this country? I do not think it will precipitate a civil war, um, but uh, it, it it's a possibility. And we talked about it uh, last week on the show with Jerry O'Neill, the former federal prosecutor. Um, go back and listen to that show if you missed it. And uh, it, and we're gonna I'm gonna talk about it right now because no civil war no, but. Uh, we're in uncharted waters, as I'm about to read my Friday essay. So, Fred, I got to go. Thanks for the call. Uh, that's a nice segue. Thank you, Fred. Uh, for the record, Donald Trump was indicted for a fourth time this week, this time by a grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia. That's the Atlanta area. This time, he was charged along with 18 others under a special law called the Racketeer-Influenced Corrupt Organization Law. That's a fancy law and term they passed in the 1980s, I believe, to go after mafia uh, bosses. Mob bosses had to figure out how to stay out of prison by having underlings handle the actual crimes. But the RICO law allowed prosecutors to go after mafia heads as part of a broader conspiracy. And it turns out that the state of Georgia has a RICO law, and so does the United States. And when Trump directed an effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election by using people like Rudy Giuliani and a host of others in the scheme, he was violating that RICO statute, according to the indictment in Georgia. The allegation is that Trump called these folks together and induced them to stage a coup of the U.S. government on his behalf. We are indeed, as I said to Fred, in uncharted, uncharted waters. The scenarios for this government are endless. Trump now faces four indictments, four trials, millions in legal expenses. The Georgia indictment has 19 defendants, including Trump, Giuliani, and a gallery of other participants in the alleged scheme. Once again, it's clear that Trump's defense will be free speech, that the three different prosecutors from three different jurisdictions, New York, Georgia, and Washington, D.C., are turning political speech into a crime. But as a former, as former federal prosecutor Jerry O'Neill explained to us last week on this show, speech is one thing. Using that speech to break the law by trying to take over the government and invalidate an election is a federal crime. It's also a crime in the state of Georgia when you pressure the duly elected officials there to overturn an election. As you heard on the, on the tape of former President Trump calling up the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and telling him to find 11,000 more votes. But now comes the complicated part. Trump, now the front runner for the Republican nomination for president, will say 
Anything done by prosecutors interferes with his free speech rights and ability to run for political office. So it raises a bunch of questions. Can the government silence someone running for office because it would prejudice the legal case? Are Trump's actions protected by his campaign? If Trump were to win the election, who does he appoint as his attorney general? Does he pardon himself? And before the election, is there any scenario in which Trump takes a plea deal? For example, he could plead guilty and to a lesser charge and in exchange agree uh, not to run for president. Um, these cases are the all now Jerry O'Neill said told said said on this show last week that there's no way that prosecutors will take that deal because they don't want to look as if they are trying to sabotage Trump's campaign for president. Um, these cases are the ultimate test of Trump's philosophy of winning via public relations and defiance. He and his lawyers are waging a PR campaign that seeks to sway the public to reelect him president so he can be beyond the reach of the law. It has worked, this strategy, many times before. But as Jerry O'Neill told us last week, we'll see. After the break, we're going to come back and take your calls. 244-1777. We're going to, we can talk more about the Trump indictment, uh, which I didn't get to on Wednesday because, uh, I was in, uh, Johnson, uh, doing the on the ground field show about flooding there. Uh, but we'll take your calls. 244-1777 after the break. Uh, I'd love to hear about the, the, your thoughts on the, on the Fulton County, uh, Trump indictment because it, it just further drives us into a, uh, into, as I said, these uncharted waters, which we have never seen in American history before. So um, let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll do that. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint and you're listening to WDEV. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. And uh, for the next 15 minutes, we're going to take your calls. And uh, we started the day off talking with uh, uh with one first caller uh, about uh, with Fred, of course, from from Newberry, although he's moved to Washington, D.C., which is an incredible development. And we should have spent more time with that. I mean, Fred, the legendary caller, has left Newberry for Washington. So uh, so we wish him well there. Uh, but let's go to the phones. Uh, Rama from Williamstown, you're on the line. Welcome. Thoughts on on because people brought up Trump and that to misunderstand the politics of today and and I think that's what happens when people are are fixating on Trump and the effect he has you know he he's the shiny bright bauble at the head of the parade but the truth is he wouldn't be there without that parade and the parade is the entire Republican Party acting in concert. Uh, as a political party, and this is not, I draw the distinction between the political party and individual members of it, but as a political party, the Republican Party is the only parade in this country, no other major political party in this country would put up with somebody of the likes of Donald Trump. So I, I think that needs to be remembered, that this isn't about an individual, this isn't about one-time President Donald Trump. This is about an entire political party that has banded together to go for a common goal. So that's my thoughts. 
Great. Well, Rama, thank you for the call. You know, I, I would refer you to, you make an interesting point. Uh, the lead story in the New York Times yesterday was about, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, challenge your thesis, but it, it does, the headline is, charges reopen split over Trump in Georgia's GOP. And I would, I would notice that, uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who is a Republican, um, uh, defends the election system there, says that, uh, says that the Trump situation is just, uh, not good for anybody and, uh, and that we should move on. Uh, Jack Kingston, a former House Republican from Georgia and a Trump ally, uh, said that, you know, it, it, Trump's just, we, we have to move on. Uh, and so I, it's going to be interesting where, where they take this. Let's go to caller number two, Jim in Roxbury. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Morning, um, Jim. I just, I have a question. I mean, I know you guys are totally, um, left politically and so forth and it's pretty obvious, but how, and I'm listening to Trump and he's certainly not a prince by any stretch, but it kind of amazes me that you can, totally or virtually ignore the Biden crime family um, and all the stuff that's come out with them. You don't hear it on your CBS News reports. You don't hear it, which I understand. Um, but you could easily spend days talking about that as well. So just a comment. Um, I listen to you, but it's a little disturbing that we only see one side of the story. And I understand Trump is is very far from being, a, like I said, a prince by any means. But there are these, politi- these politicians are all quite corrupt, and Biden is certainly, and his whole family is making million dollars off, millions of dollars off of us. So, anyway, thanks, thanks for listening. Bye. Uh, I have a response, Jim. Ready? I hope you're. If, if, just because he hangs up, he's still listening on the radio, Jim. Uh, it's funny you should mention Hunter Biden. I, I would point out that I mentioned him in the intro, number two, and number two, I'm going to do a full show on Hunter Biden uh, because uh, it's – it is – I have a – I have I have what I think is an interesting and unique take on it and uh, we're – I'm going to devote uh, some time on the show to that because it deserves it. Uh, the The plea deal that he – that fell apart – in federal court uh, in Delaware, uh, what two weeks ago, is 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 something as a as a young reporter who covered federal courts, I never saw a plea deal fall apart like that, and clearly there was a massive screw up. Uh, but there have been screw ups all along the way with Hunter Biden. I, I don't know about the alleged crime family comment and the fact that Biden's making millions of dollars off taxpayers. But I promise you that we're going to take on the Hunter Biden story uh, on another show. So thanks for the call. Mark in Warren, you're on the line. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good. Um, I'm drifting back to uh, January 6th last year yeah. when I was li- when I was listening to WDEV. And I was aghast at the fact that I was hearing the president, you know, incite a riot against Congress. And Rudy Giuliani was right behind him. And um, then when you add on all these other indictments, I think it's absolutely it defies common sense that anybody 
in their right mind would even consider Trump as presidential material. Um, yeah. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. Yeah, Mark, um, I, I, I hate to promise to do shows, but I've been thinking a lot about this and we need to do a show and I'm going to have, uh, somebody on, I think it's a journalist or a lawyer I, I, or a sociologist. I, I'm unclear as to how every time Trump gets indicted, he gets more popular with his fans. <laughs> and and at the same time, if you go back, uh, I'm old enough to remember when Gary Hart, uh, running for president, either did or did not spend the night with a woman who was not his wife. And he was drummed out of the presidential race so fast it made your head spin. Uh, Joe Biden, back in 1988, plagiarized a couple of speeches, and he was drummed out of the race uh, by our sort of media political complex and uh, Trump just changed the whole game. He just changed the whole game. For for better or for worse, the whole game got changed. And it's I don't know whether it's him specifically who had the skill to change the game or whether or not uh, somebody else could have done it too. But, you know, the guy brags about uh, sexually assaulting women and uh, – and then he goes on and wins the nomination and wins the presidency. So we need to do a show on sort of what happened to America's political media ecosystem so that we, uh, you know, we went from sort of Gary Hart to Donald Trump. I think it's an interesting story we need to focus on. Uh, Mark, thanks for the call. Uh, Bill in Montpelier, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. What's your question? Oh, you're welcome. Okay, I've talked to you before and everything. Anyway, um, actually, I was down there talking to the boss where you are working right now <laughs> yesterday, and I learned a few things. Um, I don't want to talk about Donald Trump by number. I wish we didn't have to talk about him ever again. And that's my opinion, and I don't want to have anything more to do with him because we have a lot more things to worry about right here in Vermont than Donald Trump. And that one, of course, as you know, is the flood. And uh, I learned a few things yesterday. In fact, I was out at the dam after I learned of those things, and I learned a few more things. But what I want to say right this minute is that you, you were talking about compromise and stuff. Well, I want to make a statement that I think we, we might be able to compromise. I have a I have a compromise plan that I know about, and I've told it to other people. But I don't know why we should have to compromise on people's lives, which is our lives. There are 60 apartments where I am, and we almost got flooded the last time. And I said, and, and these are all people who are uh, old or have. Um, health problems and it's not right that we end up homeless because somebody hasn't done the right thing now my one statement that i don't have a lot of time to tell a lot but um when you have water going into a lake a part of a, a part of a river or something like this faster than the water is going out of that lake or part of a river, you're going to rise the water, and at a certain length of time, there's going to be a flood. No matter what else you do, no matter what anyone says, this is a fact. I mean, do you agree with that? 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of do. I mean, that, that water is a powerful force. It's going to go where it's yeah. going to go. And no matter how much we humans try to dam it up, and uh, I mean, we've done it successfully, but when it comes over that dam and, and comes into town, it's going to go where it's going to go. Now, when you said no matter what we do to it, I don't want to say, but yesterday I found out, truthfully, that after uh, Irene, Route 107 between Bethel and Route 100, and I used to take that route a lot. We used to go down and visit people in uh, in New York and um, um, uh, Cusack, Cusack Falls. So we went that way to go there. It got, and my son camped along the White River uh, one time when he came up and visited us but before they got here. My son and, and my his family, he had my grandchildren were kids at that time, and they camped here. And uh, when that route got wiped out by Irene, um, what happened was the people running the show, that was Jim Douglas, wasn't it? Oh, boy, yes, I think, well. Yeah, and Neil, Neil Lunderville, you remember his name? I do, very well. He's been on this show. He, he, oh, he was the guy who was in charge of all this. I think Jim Douglas put him in charge. They, and I learned this yesterday from an extremely good authority, they dredged the White River because they could not repair that road until they did. That's right. That's true. That is true. So it's been done before. But my suggestion is not you got dredges that are big like the Mississippi. You got dredges like the ones they did to dredge that, and you got smaller dredges. You even have something that's called a mini dredge. And I've talked to several people. In fact, I was out at the dam yesterday, and there were some people there. And I asked the I told the lady about the mini dredge, and she I said, "Look it up." And she picked up her um, cell phone, and she looked it up. And they had a dredge that she found. I had found it too. It's called a piranha mini dredge. They make dredges, and they don't dig the stuff out. They suck it out. Bill, man, we gotta we gotta take a break. Um, I really appreciate That's your. What I wanted to tell you. Oh, you're I great. Want... You're great to call, and I really appreciate it. This dredging issue is going to be something we got to talk about. We're back, and we're joined live in the studios. With, uh, by Vermont Secretary of State Sarah Copeland Hansis. Uh, before her election to that post last year, she served in the Vermont House, this surprised me, for 18 years and was chair of the Government Operations Committee in the House and a key leader uh, on the climate change debate. Um, she's from Bradford and, uh, and has uh, been Secretary of State during this flood. Her offices were inundated. And so she brings a special perspective to all of this, and she's here in the studio with us. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Kevin. So a few weeks ago, you published an opinion piece calling on Governor Scott to do more on flood recovery and climate change in general, uh, because it's the climate change that appears to be driving what happened to all of us across the state last month. So can you review the piece with us and tell us the points you made? Yeah, and I think... Um 
I want to just set the context of where we were in our flood response at the moment that I conceived of this piece, because, um, you know, when the flood hit and we were out of our office, I said, well, I don't want to be sitting behind a computer. I'm going to go out and, and help folks. And so we we did flood response in Montpelier and Middlesex and Barrie and Johnson. Um, and, you know, after being with people in their flooded basements, in their flooded businesses for five days, I, it just struck me the level of devastation. And, and, I, and by devastation, I don't mean the piles of rubble that everybody's seen pictures of uh, lining State Street in Montpelier. I mean the human devastation, the, the hopes and dreams of all those business owners, the safety and security of all of those Vermonters who lost their homes or apartments. It is really tragic. And um, it just occurred to me that maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is the moment that we can all decide, hey, storms are being driven by climate change. You know, this is only going to get worse. Maybe this is the moment we should stop and say, okay, we've got to do something different. And, you know, as I've been working on climate policy for a number of years in the legislature, you know, it always seems that um, the the point where our progress stops is when we get to the governor and, and need the governor to implement a program or support a bill. And I was just hoping at that moment that uh, that maybe he, too, was recognizing that we can't put Vermonters through this again and again and again. We really need to get to work on reducing our contribution to climate change. You say it's time for the governor to pivot on policy. On, uh, sorry, on climate policy. And there are a few simple things that he can do. He can direct his appointees on the Climate Council to shift to an emergency response. He can direct his agency of natural resources and public service to become willing partners in implementing the clean heat standard. Uh, and third, support legislation to ensure Vermont gets 100% of its electricity from renewable energy by the end of the decade. Um, what do you mean by pivot? The, the governor needs to pivot. I, you referred to him pivoting on gun right. policy right. after the Fairhaven, the threatened uh, shooting at the Fairhaven High School. How should he pivot on climate? Well, you know, the governor says that climate change is real, and I believe um, that he believes that. Uh, the trouble is he has yet to support the ideas that have been put forward. He didn't support the Global Warming Solutions Act. He vetoed it. Uh, TCI, uh, he walked away from, uh, declined to push the regional governors to enter into the Transportation and Climate Initiative. And then, of course, most recently, the Clean Heat Standard did, didn't support it. Um, and so my hope is that the pivot for him not only means that he directs his folks to really engage in the Climate Council, but that he brings something else proactively to the table. Bring us some policy. You don't like global warming solutions. It's now law. Um, you don't like clean heat standard. It's now law. What do you want to do? What, how do you want to help Vermonters, uh, shift away from their use of fossil fuels? Because at, at the end of the day, we've got to line up these dominoes and we got to knock them over now. We needed to have done it 10 years ago, but we, we've got to do it tomorrow. 
You know, we we've I've done the show now in the field in Montpelier, uh, Barry, and I went up to Johnson last Wednesday, and I agree with you a hundred percent. You look at the faces on these people. I had a I had a gentleman who lost his house on Railroad Street in Johnson, yeah. collector of a thousand vintage record albums. You know, he lost the whole thing. Oh. Um, and there's there's a gap between it, we. I think whether you're a radio show host or a governor or a, a whatever, there's a gap between what we understand and what's really going on on the street. I mean, these people are devastated. They're exhausted and they've lost their businesses. I met with another one the other day. So how do we close that gap between what the governor and the legislature know and feel versus what's being felt on the street? You know, my hope is that if we get out and talk with Vermonters, that Vermonters will agree and that they'll join the chorus to say, enough, we've got to move forward on climate action. Uh, one of the positive steps that was taken recently that I think we can do more of is um, the Emergency Board and the Joint Fiscal Committee agreed to let Efficiency Vermont refocus $10 million of their weatherization money into a program to help folks whose appliances and heating systems were destroyed in the floods. And we've been working very closely with them to try to identify the workforce uh, that is going to need to come in to, to do that electrical work, to do that contracting work, to do that plumbing work. Um, so we're, we're throwing everything that we can as an agency behind it, uh, behind this effort. And, you know, we know that there's more that needs to be done. Uh, you mentioned in the piece, and I'm hearing this on the street as well. Winter is not far off, right. and and the, I, I was I was with Bob Nelson at Nelson's Ace Hardware in Barrie, and that's the first thing he talked about was uh, people need heat. Yes. People they don't have heat in their homes, and it's going to get hot again probably in a week or you know sometime. But it's the cold is on the way, and people need new boilers, new heat pumps, whatever that that program needs to happen. Right. The program needs to happen. I understand that they're aiming for a September 1st rollout to um, to try to make plans. And, you know, I know that we're in a race against time. The first frost is coming at some point in the next month, uh. month and a half. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the things that we need to do is think outside the box. Maybe we deploy some loaner heating systems or maybe we devise a buyback program so that if you put in your propane or your oil system now, but you want to move to a renewable energy system maybe next summer when you can line up the work and see what tax credits are available and, and all of that, we'll buy back your heating system, your fossil fuel heating system, and turn around and loan it out to someone else because we know over the last 10 years um, that our efforts to help people who need to replace their heating system um, in the dead of winter, it has has sort of faltered because we can't turn on a dime and immediately put in that renewable system. When the media wakes up and finds out that you have published this piece, they're going to ask you a question, which is, isn't this the first step in a run for higher office by Sarah Copeland-Anzis? Hey, I just ran for higher office. I'm your secretary of state, and I'm having a really good time doing that. Um, and, and what I can tell you is that I have been passionate about climate for many, many years. Yeah. And this op-ed was a genuine um, call to invite the governor to lead because I know that he hasn't liked what the legislature has put before him in recent years. 
but I'm really hoping that he's thinking of something else and he's got an idea. One more quick question before we have to take a break, and that is you met with the governor before you published this piece. That's a kind of a courtesy that most people don't offer other politicians. How'd that go, the meeting? Um, It wasn't as fruitful as I had hoped it would be, um, but my hope in doing that was really to to invite him to – have an answer ready when at his press conference he would be asked, what do you what do you think about the link between this terrible flood and climate change and what are you going to do about it? Um, so hopefully people will continue to ask him that and uh, and he'll let us know. By the way, how's it going? <laughs> you, you ran for statewide office. Uh, you won in a very tight primary and then you won easily in the general election. Um, how is what's it like? being in the legislature representing your towns versus being a statewide office holder? Well, I love it, first of all. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, everything's on a different scale from being in a, you know, 4,000 person house district versus the entire state of close to 650,000 people. But, you know, over the recent years in the legislature, I had spent a lot of time on the road out engaging with Vermonters on a number of different issues, policy issues that I really cared about. And um, so running statewide was just really fun because it was like, oh, I haven't been to this town since before COVID. (laughs) And uh, I really loved the opportunity to get to every county and every corner of the state um, and you know, it, Vermont is a really special place, and I love getting out and asking people, you know, what's working for you, what's not working for you, and what can we do better? Politicians often say that, that they like getting out to every corner of the state, but on a Sunday night when you get home at one in the morning, it must be really a drag. You know, um, <laughs> it's not the getting home that's a drag, because I really like driving. Yeah. And, you know, I did all 18,000 miles of my campaign in my electric vehicle. So um, I'm happy to talk with anybody about uh, how our state is doing in terms of adequate EV infrastructure. Um, short answer is we're doing pretty good. Um, it's the getting up the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard, yeah. you know. Yeah, a lot of hard. coffee in the morning. A lot of coffee. Okay, there's a new law passed by the legislature about, uh, it says something about contractors and the need to register, and you are in charge of this registry. I got a call from my uh, contractor friend of mine, actually, when this law was being considered, and he said, I don't know what I think of this. I sort of, I'm a little anti-government, but I think the fly-by-night guys are, are ripping people off. So he was kind of of two minds. Tell us about the law and tell us where you are in implementing it. Yeah, so I worked on this law when I was in the legislature, and, um, you know, it really came about because there were time and time again uh, cases of uh, a contractor-homeowner relationship that went bad. Um, you know, sometimes it would be, you know, a homeowner puts every last dime of their savings into a deposit on a new roof for their house, and then the contractor ghosts them. And other times it would be, you know, a contractor who does all this work, puts in their time and labor and buys the materials and does a whole, you know, renovation to a home. And then the homeowner just doesn't pay them. And, you know, those kinds of uh, situations are ones where it's helpful sometimes to have that registration system. And so the contractor registry is really just that. There's no, there's no, um, you know, certification of, uh, of training. There's no, um, 
you know, qualifications. You just have to be a business in good standing, uh, show that you've got insurance and agree that projects over $10,000 you're going to have a written contract on. And those written contracts are really sort of the basis point for that consumer protection that is the goal of the contractor registry. So when I put on a new roof on my house, the I'm going to have to have a contract with the contractor? Yes. Yep. What are we going to do? Uh, how much is it going to cost? You know, what, what was the down payment? What do we expect the payment cadence to be um, yeah. through the, the course of the project? Let me put on my old Vermonter hat and say, well, you're taking away the handshake, the doing business on a handshake in small towns where you know your contractor. I'm thinking of myself here. We've never had a contract with – we didn't have a contract with our roofer because he was our next-door neighbor and we knew him. Yeah, uh, yeah. that so still works for a lot of people. That still works. It works for a lot of people. Um, all we're saying is write down what you agreed upon when you shook hands. It okay. doesn't have to be – you know, you don't need a lawyer. You don't need, um, you, you know, a whole lot of uh, um, technical knowledge. Right. Just write down what you're doing um, because for many people, the handshake no longer works. Yeah. What's the fee for the contractor? Oh, it, right now it's, I think, $100. Okay. Um, the, this is the voluntary um, registration time period. Uh, it will become required in 2024 for contractors to register. So uh, the fee, the permanent fee will uh, will be higher than that. So we encourage people to, to get registered right now um, on the OPR website, Office of Professional Regulation. Um and, you know, one of the things that we did when we set up the contractor registry that was really a promise of mine um, was that we put people who are uh, registered contractors on a map that Vermonters can go and look at and say, okay, who are the contractors in my area and how do I get a hold of them? And that's really an opportunity for Vermonters who maybe don't have a contractor because uh, many of us aren't as lucky as you and having yeah. someone lives right down the street from them. Uh, how do you find somebody in a pinch? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, what's the website? Um, let me see if I have Secretary that of State. Sec- Just Google uh, Vermont, yeah. Secretary Vermont Secretary of State. Secretary of State Professional Regulation. And it'll come yeah. up and you can yeah. register there. Yeah. Okay. I've got two more quick issues. There's other – I want to go back to the flood. There's other flood Things that you and your office have been doing. What are those? Well, we have been all hands on deck uh, because we each of our divisions um, has Vermonters that we serve uh, who have been impacted by the floods. Uh, so our Archives and Records Administration immediately um, compiled a list of the hardest hit communities and began reaching out to those um, municipal entities, maybe the historical societies. Uh, making sure that if anyone had records that were damaged, that need to be restored, that we were providing them with information about how to do that. Um, they teamed up also with our elections division because our elections division, of course, has uh, very close contact with all of the municipal offices, all of the town clerks in, in all those communities. And so elections then reached out to make sure that the clerks who maybe lost some of their election equipment or uh, voter registration forms could uh, order more. Um, thankfully, the 
the communities that were hardest hit by flooding uh, didn't see a great deal of damage to their municipal offices. And so I think we're in really good shape. Uh, we are very relieved that this didn't happen in an election year because that would have sent us all scrambling. Um, our Office of Professional Regulation has been uh, really intensely involved in uh, in flood response because we worked with the governor's administration to make sure that we offered uh, emergency reciprocity for those professions that we knew we were going to need to bring into Vermont, like contractors, oh, engineers, architects, yeah. well drillers, wastewater system operators. We wanted to make sure that uh, that if there was a shortage of those professionals in Vermont, that we could bring someone in from a neighboring state to help Vermonters get their work done. But we also wanted to make sure that those folks who are operating in our state knew how they could get connected with Vermonters who need their help. And so we also proactively pushed out a communication to all of those uh, licensed professionals in Vermont and said, here's how you can get help if your business was impacted. Here's how you can offer help if you have goods or services that could be of assistance. And then finally, the Business Services Division. Uh, we we have a database of uh, 225,000 uh, registered uh, active or recently inactive businesses. And we wanted to make sure, again, that those businesses knew how to access services if they had been impacted by the flooding and how to offer goods or services if they wanted to be of help in flood relief. So we pushed out a number of communications uh, again, in collaboration with the governor's administration and, and commerce and community development on how businesses could get help during this time. Your office was flooded. You're not in your office. Nope, we're not. Where are you working? Well, I call it uh, summer camp. We're bunking with our cousins. Uh, so the Vermont State Archives, uh, which is under the Secretary of State's office, is in Middlesex. So we sent our business services division in that direction because they have walk-in customers from time yeah. to time. We didn't want walk-in customers to have to come into Montpelier because those first several weeks after the flooding, it was just really devastating and hard to navigate through uh, downtown Montpelier. Uh, our leadership team and our elections division um, has gone to bunk with our cousins at the Office of Professional Regulation, which is in Montpelier. So we're here through probably the end of this month. I'm I'm here. I heard a rumor that uh, Jennifer Fitch, the commissioner of buildings in, for state government, has told various agencies that they're not going to be back in their buildings for 18 months. I can't really get it confirmed. I should have her on the show. But uh, when you look at the giant tubes that are coming out of the governor's office in the mm-hmm. pavilion building, it doesn't look like that building is habitable anytime soon. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> one of the challenges was simply getting that volume of water out of those buildings. Um, but the other reality is that it hasn't stopped raining and the yeah. ground is saturated. And yeah. so, you know, as we heard was the case at Montpelier High School, is probably the case in some of those state buildings in downtown Montpelier, you know, groundwater is uh, is still pushing in through every crack and crevice and floor drain. Yeah. Okay. I can't let you go uh, without – we have we have 15 seconds about this novel theory being pushed by some legal experts that allows you to take Trump off the ballot – because he was part of an insurrection. Do you have a comment on that? It's definitely a novel theory. 
uh, Vermont statute doesn't contemplate uh, anyone uh, making that predetermination before putting someone on the ballot. Uh, so my short answer is this is probably a matter for the courts. Got it. Secretary of State Sarah Copeland Hansis, thanks for coming. Nice to be here. Okay. We got a lot of answers there. That was good. That contractor registry is small, but it's a big issue. Uh, people care about it. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're going to come back with Bob Nay in at the top of the hour. We're going to talk about all things Washington, D.C. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We are back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we go to Washington, D.C. for our weekly conversation with Bob Nay. Bob, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Okay, I was accused by a caller earlier in the show of being a lefty. Uh, so mm. I, I, for, I guess because I'm, uh, you know, being, being mean to the former president, but I, I, so I can't help but start there. Mm-hmm. Uh, G, Trump's GOP rivals are converging on Atlanta. Trump is, uh, seeking to have his trial in 2026 and the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, is rejecting uh, all claims of election uh, misbehavior and says that nobody's come forward with any credible claim of, of, of a bad election. So it seems to me you've got a split in the Republican Party in Georgia over this whole situation. Can you talk to us about that? Right. Now, how you read those headlines, I'm going to put you to moderate. How's that? There you go. <laughs> Okay, but the the headlines I think are indicative of of what is really going on, you know, within the Republican Party. Of course, the Democratic Party has its own situation with the president. Uh, most people would like to have, in the Democrat Party, would like to have another choice. In the Republican Party, you, we have have a different scenario that we see for the Republican Party because the uh, you know former presidents on is going to be on trial, makes a whole new dimension. So you have Trump loyalists who it goes beyond the election and they, you know, they think this is unfair and they're sticking by him. So you have that portion, uh, which is the majority, you know, of the voters. Now, not a super majority, but it's a majority. Then you have the other candidates. DeSantis is second. Vivek Ramaswamy is, you know, is uh, a third basically behind him and the rest are, you know, downstream on that. Uh, but there is a split in the party when it comes to, you know, should Trump run or not? Not about Trump, what type of job he would do, but should he run or not? Will it detract from everything else? And if somebody else runs, it'll be a runaway election against Biden. So that's the that's I think the split in the party is about the election and who can win it. And um, and yes, there's some division about is Trump a good guy or a bad guy. But I think it's more along the lines in the party of, you know, where do they go from here? And is this you support Trump or you don't support the Republican Party? And it should be just what what's the Republican Party about? I think those are the, the divisional splits there. And, Bob, uh, the and it, as you said earlier, and I agree, it's pretty clear that most a lot of Democrats don't want President Biden to run again. <laughs> well, 
crew. And and here's the problem that they have too. And I just I just spoke today to uh, uh, there was an office full of people I had to go for an appointment, and they asked me the questions about politics. I didn't bring it up, and then I asked them, and, and they were pretty you know unbiased people. They're not way to the right or way to the left or anything like that. And I, almost categorically to a person. When you say Biden, the next word out of their mouth is Kamala Harris. Yeah. yeah. You know, would she make a good president of the United States? And I think we know overwhelmingly she has the worst numbers in American history. So that's that's another nuance to this entire election, because people feel Biden will not finish the next term for one reason or another. And so he has that problem within the Democratic Party. Now, they don't want to tickety boot him out. Uh, but they would way overwhelmingly prefer another candidate. The mortgage rates uh, on a on a thirty year mortgage rose to seven point zero nine percent. It's a little jump, but that's uh, a year ago it was five point one three. I'm the proud owner, I believe, of a three percent fixed mortgage, but but uh, that you know. That's negative economic news for President Biden and all of us, oh, it, right? Yes, it, it really is because I myself, as you know, I flipped houses, and after twenty-five houses, I'm I'm in a moratorium, self-imposed right now. I, I can't. This is a, a dangerous market, and it's not that I want to go back to the days where I put a house up for sale and had nine people competing with each other to buy it. But today, the market is so strained. And for a lot of young people, wow, you know, my daughter's 35. She's in a house. She's at three and a half percent interest. What about somebody that's, you know, 24 right now trying to buy their first home? And it's, you know, 7.03 percent interest, which they're going to pay double on the mortgage that they would have paid, you know, on a couple of years ago. So this is tough. It's not good news for the economy. And realtors, um, in our area, central Ohio area, of course, we have an Intel chip factory coming. So we're a little bit unique. But even with that, I keep telling the realtors there's going to be a constraint of the system. You just are going to have a lot of people that are going to say, I, I can't afford you know, 7.03. Now, when I bought my first house, it was 14% interest in the 70s. I had to buy a house, and I did. But, wow, you know, you don't ever want to go back to the, to those days. Well, I remember uh, Jimmy Carter slash Ronald Reagan. They were 17%, as I recall. Yes. Yes, and I paid 14%. But in today's world, you know, a lot of people are going to stay away from that, and so they rent. And the rents have went up all over the place, all over the United States. So people are in in a problem. This creates a problem for the president because it just adds to prices of gasoline. And, yes, gasoline has dropped, but, yes, gasoline is still up from where it was a few years ago. Food prices have dropped some, but they're still up. So, again, everything is still up, and how far do the wages go is a big question. Bob, uh, I want to ask you about uh, the sentence, that the, the case of the Proud Boys uh, convicted for seditious conspiracy over the U.S. Capitol riot. Prosecutors have asked for a term of 27 to 33 years in a federal prison for a guy named Henry Enrique Terrio. I guess my question is, you know, we all focus on Trump because he's the he's the shining uh, sort of a jewel. But 
underneath the Trump situation, you've got dozens of people who were part of that riot who went to jail. The leader of the far-right militia group Oath Keeper Stuart Rhodes is going to prison for 18 years. These are serious sentences. What's going on here? Well, they are, and again, I think what was done to the Capitol was outrageous. What was done to the Capitol Police was horrific. Uh, some, it was vandalism and destruction. Some, it was an attempt to actually stop the election, and that falls into the category of sedition. Now, sentence of 33 years, I don't know. I mean, to me, that goes beyond proving the point. Um, yeah. I guess the prosecutors are starting high. I highly doubt. A judge will go to, you know, 30 or 33 years. But again, what they did wasn't correct. Trying to stop an election wasn't correct. But it's, it's, you know, there's been cases where people have sold national secrets, sold them to our enemies and have done, you know, far less time. Yeah. So I, I, I think when you're starting to talk 30 years, even though I think it's despicable what they did, I'm just not <laughs> convinced that, you know, these merit a you know, 30 year federal. By the way, then you go into the high super maxes with that type of time down. Yeah. And, you know, that's 24, 23 hours a day, basically in a room. Right. Right. It seems, uh, it's, it seems excessive. Uh, I think so. Bob, as a, as a proud member of the Republican Party for many years, can you try to can you take us for our last question of the day? Can you take us inside the Republican caucuses in the Senate and the House in Washington or anywhere else in the country for that matter? Is there anybody trying to lead the Republican Party out of this uh the Trump situation and forward? Uh Asa Hutchinson looks like from Arkansas he might not even make the debate stage. Uh you know, yeah. I, I we spend some time on this show trying to figure out a future for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Is there is there anybody out there that's leading that way intellectually? Well, right now it's a vacuum. Asa Hutchinson and Tim, his brother, were personal friends of mine. Wonderful people. They would make either one of them would make a, a great president, frankly, of the United States. It's not going to happen, but but you know, Asa would. Uh, as far as the House and the Senate. I know what's going on now with the with the Senate. They tend to say, you know, that the House is the uh, the Republicans tend to say that the House is the uh, key unstable element because it's so close with McCarthy as Speaker and the votes he has or doesn't have. But I think the House feels that it's the bastion that it needs to you know get this work done. Here's their problem: <laughs> they're up against a deadline. What are they going to do? What they promised not to do, which is they're going to punt this budget ball down the field. They didn't complete the, you know, 13 appropriation bills as they were supposed to. And so they're going to temporarily punt this. They're going right back to what they have done for 16 to 20 years. And so I I think, if anything, McCarthy in the House has got to step up to the plate, get things done. And here's their number one problem. This is a vacuum. I mean, Trump sucks all the air out of the room. And this is now, if I was running for Congress right now and Republican, and I was, you know, in the caucus this morning, I would ask the question of Speaker McCarthy, how are you going to get us back onto a mantra of what we need to be? Gasoline prices, food prices, education, bigger government, less government, balancing the budget, you know, all the things that we need to talk about. How do you do that when you're going to go out in your district and the question is going to be, you know, 
do you support Donald Trump being indicted or not? And it's, yeah. and it's endless. Yeah. So it's going to take some leadership to just say, you know, let's quit talking about this. Here's what we want to do in Congress. We better get that word out of what we're doing in Congress. And then they've got to do it. Bob Nay, as always, it's uh, insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. That's Bob Nay, our expert on Washington, D.C., every Friday here. Uh, we're going to come back after the break. We're going to have Ann Wallace-Allen join us from Seven Days to talk about the launch of Vermont State University. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we're now going to pivot to this week's issue of Seven Days the great newspaper and website uh, that we go to every Friday. And our guest is Ann Wallace-Allen, and she's going to talk to us about the new Vermont State University. Ann, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. I understand you're going to have barking dogs and contractors in the background, and that makes it all the more fun. Exactly. Um, okay, I I read your story, and... It, it, I, I emerged feeling a little bleak about the, the newly branded Vermont State University. Why don't you tell us what led to the story? And, and sounds like you went campus to campus all last week. Um, I did do some campus tours, uh, starting on July 20th or so. And it certainly wasn't my intention to, uh, make the situation sound bleak. It is definitely, though, a, uh, case of huge change coming one way or another. And so I don't think anybody really knows what the, uh, the system is going to look like after, after it has adjusted itself to fit the new reality, which is that there are way fewer students than there used to be. And the world is just changing in a lot of other ways. A lot of people are questioning whether it's worth paying uh, so much money for a four-year degree when you might not really be any better off except you know, you might know more, which is always very important. But financially, you know, it doesn't make a sense to be that far in debt. So there's a lot of – basically, the world is just changing a lot. And um, the college system is trying very hard to adjust. And I don't think any of us can say what it's going to look like. But they're going to have to save a lot of money, and that's going to mean some hard choices in terms of buildings and programs. This is this is the sort of next step in a process that began with – the hiring of a new president and then the firing of a new president. Uh, uh, former Chancellor Jeb Spaulding sounded this alarm a long time ago uh, uh, and then was shown the door or either or resigned, either one. Uh, the governor has been very clear about this, that the colleges have overbuilt and overextended themselves. Uh, and the legislature cannot keep appropriating dollars uh, to this while they've got other uh, uh, other priorities, so you talk to President Interim President Mike Smith. What does he have to say? Well, um, Mike Smith is a, is a veteran of handling chaotic situations. Um, he sort of became semi-famous in Vermont for his his uh, he was at the helm of the AHS during the, the pandemic, and he's always presents a calm and unflappable face to the world as he deals with mayhem. And so his position on the state colleges is that, yes, we are deeply in debt or we have a, we're, they're operating with a great structural deficit. I will say that the state is making up with some one-time money as they look for savings. And his position is that, 
yes, it's going to change. We're going to find savings. We're going to boost enrollment, which is the most important thing that they can do to bring more revenue into the system. And he's not making any promises, but he's, you know, presenting a very sort of cheerful and matter-of-fact face to this situation. Vermont is not the only place that is struggling to find a new direction for its state college system. In fact, many, many states are having facing the same situation because even though our demographics are uh, extreme, you know, in terms of not having very many young people and people who are of the age to be going to college, other states are seeing that too. And also, as I said, people are just, a lot of people are choosing to go straight into technical school or trades or apprenticeships or things like that instead of just the traditional four-year college. So it's not really, there isn't a whole lot of finger pointing going on at this point. It's more a question of where in the world are we going to find savings and how on earth are we going to attract students to go to these schools. They, you know, one of the tours I went on only had one student on the tour. She was greatly outnumbered by people who were also on the tour to help support her and talk to her about financial aid and academic support and other opportunities at school. I mean, you can see the colleges are trying uh, in their way to to get people to go, but they also need to attract out-of-state students who are going to pay more money, and there's more of them, obviously, than in a place like the Northeast Kingdom, which has, you know, the uh, the VTSU Linden campus, which used to be Linden State College, they have the lowest enrollment. It's just far under 1,000 now, and um, they have the lowest population of kids in their area. I mean, the Northeast Kingdom is just sparsely populated, so they're, they're facing an uphill battle unless they can get a bunch of out-of-state people interested in going to these schools. And if you're an out-of-state uh, student who can pay the money, why wouldn't you go to UVM as opposed to uh, Linden or, or Castleton? I well, mean, it's the, a tough, you know, tough, tough road. Some people do want that smaller, um, smaller campus experience. Like the campuses are lovely. And when I was at Johnson writing about ticks this spring, I was in the lab for a long time with a professor and his students who were working in the lab, these undergrads, and they were telling me that, I mean, one of them had actually transferred from Mount Holyoke, and she told me that she would never have had the, that kind of opportunity to work in a lab like that that she had at, um, at Johnson. She, and, you know, they were really happy with their experience, and they all knew what they were going to do. They were all going to go on to work in labs right. to do research. Right. Uh, you, there's a sidebar in your story about the Community College of Vermont, which is independent of the state university, uh, but part of the system. And you, it, it's the headline says CCV is having a moment. And at 840 bucks a class, I can understand why. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, CCV is having a moment. They are, I think their enrollment is up 13% year over year. And they've had a couple of First of all, they're experiencing um, the bright side of the demographic change or the cultural change is that more people are looking at state college and saying, this is a way I can save money and get qualified quickly. Another great advantage they have is that they're nimble. They can they don't have a lot of bricks and mortar. They don't have those big green campuses, little dining halls and things. So they can add or subtract classes depending on um, the vagaries of the job market or what people want. And that makes it a lot easier for them to uh, attract students quickly. And also there's been a couple scholarship programs that make it even more affordable to go to CCV. Plus there's this early high school program that the state has where kids can, you know, uh, forego their senior year and just start taking classes at community college and graduate from high school and finish 
uh, that first year for free at community college. And that's been an even, that's been so popular that that's even an area of growth at the state colleges of Vermont because they can do that. At the young people can do that at the state colleges too. So if they can adjust to change, you know, they can make it. The, the, one of the stars of your article is a, is a young lady named Trinity Simons who, who, uh, you shadowed and it looks like a photographer, uh, shadowed she and her father on her tour as well. How did they respond to, uh, be, getting up close and personal with seven days? They were incredibly generous with me. I mean, I talked to her dad a couple times on the phone after we did shadow them all over that campus tour. Um, they really were, were really nice about talking to me about their reasons for uh, going to Linden. Trinity's from Lindenville, and she wants to stay close to home. She's not ready for, as her dad put it, I think the big bad world or the big bad wolves out there. And um, it was interesting to talk to her, too, because she had been through the pandemic in high school, and it, it, it had an effect on her confidence in general doing that online learning. She wasn't really ready for it, and she, wasn't, she didn't really like it. So the pandemic, I could tell, had set things back a little bit for her, um, and she's, she was looking for, she and her parents were looking for a place where that's safe and a little bit familiar and not just too much all at once. So they were, they were pretty, they were pretty nice about helping me understand what's going on with students these days. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated by your description of this, this cultural change that's going on. And, and I, it's, it, it's varied, like, Parents are worried about sending their kids out in the big bad world. That certainly wasn't a worry of my parents. Uh, uh, you know, there's this fear out there that the cities are dangerous and, and uh, these kids should stay closer to home. Uh, I, I don't know. There's a, you're right. The, I'm, the story really paints a picture of a, of a changing educational landscape that is just buffeting these institutions of these legacy institutions and they're really going to have to change. Do you have any prediction about where this is going to go for the colleges? Um, Kevin, do any of us have any predictions about where anything is going to go <laughs> in this crazy time? I will say that there's, you know, there's been over the last 15 or 20 years, you and I have both seen this mania for prestige take over the American educational system. I mean, there, it always used to be there, but now it's, um, right. it's amped up. So right. the, the, the expensive private liberal arts colleges, like a small handful of them, are getting way more applications then they know what to do with it. And in fact, enrollment at Middlebury was so high, higher than they expected, because a lot of people, I guess, came back from the pandemic and wanted to keep going to school, that they're paying students $10,000 to take time off. Yeah. And UVM, too, is swamped with applications, tons of applications from out of state. They've become really popular. So it's there's a lot of little complicated things going on there. But I was on a tour of the former Vermont Technical College with parents who's Kids were not um, necessarily going to end up at that school, but were, they were just checking it out as part of many college tours. And um, the woman, uh, one of the women I was on the tour with, with her son, they were from New Jersey, and she said that there were like many tours going on at the same time of UVM, and they had like 30 people in them each tour. So the, some colleges are doing just fine, and people have the money to spend $85,000 a year on them or whatever they end up paying after all the aid and stuff like that. Um, it's just that the regional, the smaller regional college systems are, are battling. They don't have the prestige and uh, they're, they're battling some forces that are going to force them to change. 
Yeah, and you can read about it all in uh, in this week's Seven Days and Ann Wallace Allen. It's a long story. It's just chock full of interesting color and detail. So, uh, and you can read it online at sevendaysvt.com. Ann Wallace Allen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. Talk to you later. Okay. Ann Wallace Allen, uh, she does the hard, she does the heavy lifting at seven days. And at that, this state, you know, at this radio station, we're loaded with, uh, state college grads. I know there's some Linden State folks, uh, CCV, Greg Titus, who the, at the, at the soundboard there is a CCV guy. 840 bucks for a class at CCV, that's a good deal. And, uh, as someone who always wanted to get a master's degree in history, uh, I should I should look into it. Uh, I know Joyce Judy is the president over there. She runs a tight ship, and uh, they're doing well. So best of luck to everyone. Thanks to Ann Wallace-Allen for that story, and say hi to everybody at Seven Days. We're back. And it's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we have a friend of the show coming on. Her name is Sarah DeFelice, and she is the owner, founder of a store called Bailey Road uh, in downtown Montpelier. She sells women's clothing and uh, home goods. And as I've said many times since the flood, if Montpelier is going to recover, it's going to be on the shoulders of people like Sarah DeFelice. And she's, we've determined that we're going to check in with her uh, from time to time as she rebuilds her store so that <clears throat> we can continue to tell the stories of people downtown who are struggling to recover. And I think uh, if we check in with Sarah on a monthly basis, we're going to get a, a really good picture of what's going on with the recovery. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. So I was in Northfield uh, yesterday and I, I, the show, the store was open, but before we get there, I want to, let's go back in time if we could and force you as you probably are every day to relive uh, what happened a month ago on that Monday. Can you bring us up to date about what happened in your store, which by the way, is located right in downtown Montpelier, right there at the intersection of state and Maine. So can you just go back in time and tell us what happened? Yeah, um, we were watching the um, radar and kind of the flood levels and seeing it keep continue to rise. And then um, there's a Facebook chat with Montpelier businesses in it, and everybody was just showing pictures from their security cameras or if they lived downtown in upper apartments, they would send pictures, and you could just see the water le- levels just rising. Um we weren't able to visit our store until Tuesday after 3 o'clock. Or it was either Monday or Tuesday after 3. And we went down as soon as we could once the city allowed us to go in. And um, it I don't think I was prepared for how much devastation there was in the store. The water had come in really fast. So tables were knocked over. All of our furniture was destroyed. And there was still – you couldn't even go down one step into our basement because it just – for the next 72 hours, um, the water was just level with the first floor. Um, we received four feet of water on the first floor, um, and it just it just it was just devastating. And you had you had recently moved your store from across Main Street from another side of the street. Uh, how long had you been open? Uh, we had been in our new home uh, at 75 Main Street for. 
uh, a little over a year. Right. So we had just done a huge rebuild, um, which it was beautiful before all of this. What? Just one more background question, Sarah. What got you into this business in the first place? Oh, great question. Um, I was a UVM graduate, and all through college I worked at Banana Republic. And so retail was kind of an accidental career for me because I would find those odd jobs throughout college and after college. Um, I was sailing off the coast of Maine for two years, and I would come back in the winter and work at a boutique in Montpelier called Adorn. But once Adorn decided she was going to close her doors, um, I realized that I wanted to open up my own store in town and kind of fill the need that she was leaving when she closed. So I did that in 2014, and I've been here ever since. Okay. Now, you have, uh, like a lot of your fellow store owners, you've taken some steps uh, to mm-hmm. stay alive business-wise, generate revenue, and innovate, and think about ways that you're going to, as you rebuild your store, uh, you can't just sit still. So tell us what you've done. Um, yes, I think being innovative and coming up with um, new ideas of how to get product and sales out to people um, has been really huge for me. So within the first two weeks after the um, the flood, I was able to do a sip and shop at Bar Hill, and the community came out in droves to support us there. And that was awesome. So that was probably one of our first innovative ways to get product out to people. In addition to that, I did a um, online live bundle sale where it would be really steep discounts on clothing, and it was all put together by sizing. And you would just buy a bundle, and whatever you got in that bundle at a really low cost, um, whatever came in the bundle you would get. And then um, a week after my bundle sale, I opened up a warehouse pop-up shop in Northfield. So while we're waiting for our store in Montpelier to be rebuilt and renovated, we can still kind of um, bring product to people. And it's been a really great um, way for us to just limp along while we are trying to get back into our old space. Okay, so let's let's get into some detail um, because I was at the Bar Hill sale. Uh, yes. I was my you wife. Got a great my, blanket. I got an alpaca blanket for thirty six dollars. <laughs> yeah, great deal. <laughs> uh, incredible, seventy percent <laughs> off, as I recall. Yes. Uh, um, and and we we watched you on the bundle sale. Uh, we we have been, and I'll tell you the the Northfield. Uh, what are, what are you calling it? An outlet or a warehouse shop or a warehouse? Yep. Okay. The Northfield warehouse shop, just so everybody knows it's right next to the coffee shop and it's right next to Scott Kerner's uh, brewery and uh, pub. So it's a really, actually a great, here's what you do. You leave my pillar, Barry, Waterbury, whatever you go down route 12. Don't go on the interstate, go down route 12 Stop mm-hmm. at uh, stop at the Dog River Farm on your way down. Get some corn, which I did last night. Uh, then go into Northfield. Uh, go get lunch at the pub uh, with a beer. Watch some t- sports on TV. Uh, then go get a cookie at the coffee shop. And then just walk next door. Or you can get ice cream across the street. Then walk yeah. next door to the to Sarah's. Uh, 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 I think it's donated, but I don't know. You may be paying rent. Yeah. But, 
But go, go, uh, go to Sarah's uh, warehouse there. The front is retail and you've got a lot of stuff going on there. It's a great half day trip to Northfield. It truly is. Yeah. We are in the Greenlight real estate office, um, space. He, Ray Minkus from Greenlight generously donated two months. We're not, we're not paying rent just to give us a place to land. And it has been awesome. And then Stowe Street Emporium, um, uh, Boutique and Waterbury donated like five beautiful shelving. So we were able to get up and running pretty quickly. It's been incredible the amount of people that's just donated in all the little ways that they can. It's been awesome. Uh, so can you, have you totaled up to the extent you're willing to share publicly, what's this going to cost you? I'm talking the damage, the rebuild of the Montpelier store, uh, all of the things mm-hmm. that you're having to do. I mean, it's a huge, you know, Tim Heaney told us on the air that, and he's your landlord in Montpelier, that it's going to cost him $2 million uh, and he's got to go to yeah. the bank and get a mortgage. What, what are we talking about financially for a small business like you? Yeah, when I first, I guess the first two or three weeks after um, the flood, I was thinking I would need around $75,000 to get back up and running. But that number has doubled since then. So I'm looking at around 150000 to just get up and running. And that goes from rebuilding all of the custom fixtures that were in my space. And I had a, an incredible amount of inventory loss. 60% of my inventory was gone. So there's like $80,000 that is needed right there. And then all the little things that just add up from needing a new iPad and a new computer and all of my um, label printers and receipt printers, my credit card reader, my barcode scanner, all the little things just start to add up. Um, so we're looking at around 150 at this point. Yeah, there you go. At, at least. And, and that's... At and and that's, that's doesn't yeah, include having any kind of um, cash flow savings. Right. What I keep thinking is businesses are not going to flop this year. They're not going to flop in this last fourth quarter because fourth quarters are Super Bowl when it comes to retail. Where businesses are going to start to struggle is at the end of first quarter next year. So we need to have a huge, strong holiday season October, November, December, in order to make it through January, February, and March. Because at the end of this, my savings will be depleted. Everything I've saved from January all through the year will be going back into rebuilding. Um, so that 150 doesn't count towards that like savings cushion that I usually have at this point of the year to get me through the first quarter of next year. Sarah, I, I uh, got to ask you, when... I walk by your store in Montpelier and I just love seeing the work that's going on. Although it's, it's not, because it's not a hole in my wallet like it is yours, but it is, <laughs> it's inspiring to see folks in there hammering away and screw guns and hanging things and, and getting it back. When do you think, uh, we're going to be able to come in and start shopping? Oh, I feel like this is one of those timelines that keeps getting pushed back. Originally, I was hoping Labor Day weekend, but now it's looking more like mid-September. Yep. Um, we're still waiting to hear back. I completed my ACCD, the state grant application, and I'm still waiting to hear um, how much will be awarded from that. And that's kind of – that's I need to know how much money – I'll be awarded from the state in order to know how much I can afford for contractors to come in and really 
build us back up. So um, I'm kind of waiting on that number before moving forward. Okay. And you mentioned the need to have a, a strong holiday season. So I encourage everybody listening and everybody in the studio uh, to do what I'm going to do, which is this holiday season. I mean, I've always kind of done it, but make it Amazon free. Make it yeah. uh, don't, don't shop online. You know, yeah, you can get it a, a day early or whatever, or it's really easy because you're at your computer. But you know what? Go down to Bailey Road. Go down to Bear Pond Books. Go go to Capital Stationers. Go to Ravel Rouser. Uh, you meet people. Uh, you talk to people, you build community, and as I like to say to Sarah, you can't get uh, those dish towels from uh, straight from a, a, a craftsman in Lithuania the way I did uh, yeah. when you go online. So uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go completely online free from now until well whenever because uh, talk to us if you would about the importance of a downtown shopping area? I think what a downtown gives people is an experience, truly, where you're walking down the sidewalk, you're seeing the rivers, you're seeing the flowers that we have out, and you're going into the stores and hearing the creaky floors. You get all of your packages wrapped up in tissue. There's a person smiling, thanking you for your purchase, and you walk down the street with your bags and your tissue paper um, it just is, it is an experience. And, and I think we miss those experiences when we're just sitting in front of a computer. And so I think that's something special that Montpelier brings in downtowns in Montpelier or downtowns in Vermont in general, where there's no chain stores and it's all mom and pop shops and you can just walk store to store. That's really special. And I think it's something that deserves to be preserved. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, you are part of uh, a series of community meetings. Uh, and there was one at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Uh, I was mm-hmm. there. You got up and spoke. And there is a second one, and I'll promo it here, August 22nd um, at the uh, State House. And they're going to start at 630, and I have the agenda in front of me, and I see that you – are going to be one of the uh, sort of welcomers and speakers uh, at the beginning. Tell us uh, what's going to happen and tell us more about that meeting. Um, one thing about the first meeting, the moderator was just truly awesome. There was, It was just an informative. People were able to share their feelings, but it wasn't a combative environment, which I was originally worried about, but it was run very smoothly. I believe the second set of this meeting will be kind of narrowing down all of the thoughts that were shared from the first one so we can start putting them into action. Um, A lot of what the community members talked about was loving the downtown and the small businesses here. And so I'm really honored that I can kind of talk and share um, at the next meeting kind of the progress that's happening and uh, what we need as a business community in order to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, I had lunch yesterday at the North Branch Cafe, and I noticed that Lauren Parker and her colleagues over there are putting out on Instagram a a kind of a daily list of the restaurants that are open and serving food. And I I found that to be an incredible help because it's, you know, while it looks quite bleak downtown, there's a lot of places that are open that you can get to for for a meal. Yeah, there's a lot of food establishments 
that are still open. I'm actually sitting in my car right in front of them now because I was working in there this morning. Um, Northbridge is great, and they started opening early to kind of help that morning um, crowd. They open at 8 o'clock now instead of 11, so it's a great place to go and grab a warm cup of coffee or, or more mostly tea and meet with people or get some work done. Uh, they've been a great little hub while the city is still trying to reopen. Yeah, get the pesto chicken, let me tell you, and say hi to Ooh, Lauren Parker. Avocado toast. Yeah, avocado toast. Say hi to Lauren Parker yeah. when you're there. Um, so, yeah, th- this the agenda for this meeting at the State House, August 22nd, starts at 6.30. The moderator, again, will be Paul Costello, who's a veteran at this. Uh, Bill Fraser, the city manager, will speak. Uh, John Holler's going to speak for the Montpelier Foundation. Uh, and you're right, there's going to be breakout groups that talk about the different categories of what we need to talk about. Emergency planning, food system security, uh, leadership for recovery and resilience, supporting public health and well-being, financing recovery and resilience. So I guess that leads me to ask you, as a business owner, what do you need most from government, from the public, uh, to get your business back on its feet? That's a a complicated Um, one. I think from, (laughs) that is a complicated one. I think from the government and from the city, I just need really clear communication. I need to know what's happening, what timelines are happening, um, like when trash removal will be happening and when the city will stop picking everything up. Just clear communication is really key because we are not downtown in the city every day like we used to be. We need those lines of communication really clear. Um, as for the public, um, every business is, is kind of going about this a little bit differently, how they can kind of survive this in-between while our doors are closed. So it's hard to speak for how different businesses are trying to get people to still shop their goods, whether it's online or in pop-up shops. But for Bailey Road specifically, our cute little warehouse in Northfield is a great way to support us. It is, like you said, it's a great kind of afternoon, morning drive, and the town is just adorable. I mean, I grew up there, so it has a soft spot in my heart, but there's the common, there's the common cone for ice cream. You could go up to a big playground if you have your kids with you up near Memorial Park. There's really a lot to do in Northfield, too, Um, and that's how you can support my business, not only shopping online, but if you want that in-store experience, our warehouse is a great place to kind of spend your time. Okay, I've got two secret suggestions as we wrap up here. Yeah, the Northfield, yeah. unbeknownst to many, has a great municipal pool up on the hill. Yeah, and they, a huge they, playground. Yeah, they might charge you a buck to get in, even if you don't live there. But it's a great pool. When we lived there, it used to leak thousands of gallons every day. But I know they've fixed <laughs> that by now. But here's another one. As you go into town on your right from Montpelier, there's a road called Slaughterhouse Road. You take, oh, yes. a, you take a right there, park your car, just do it. There's a little parking area on the side, and there's a covered bridge, and there's a rope swing tied to the bottom of the covered bridge, and it is the best swimming hole. I mean, I wouldn't call it – it's it rivals some of the Mad River swimming holes um, for fun. Uh, it's, a, it's got a sandy bottom, and there's rapids down below. By now, the river has – died down. It's just a fabulous swimming hole. So there's your day. There's your Saturday. Swimming hole, uh, Kevin, I mean, uh, uh, Scott Kerner's pub, and then a shopping spree at uh, Bailey Road in downtown Northfield. That sounds pretty good. 
Yeah, it is a good one. Okay. The covered bridge drive is pretty nice too. Where you can go through three covered bridges on that's Cox on Coxbrook Road. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. Well, Sarah DeFelice, uh, we are grateful to you for coming on the show, and uh, we intend to keep checking in with you to see how it's going. Uh, and uh, your smiling face uh, gives us all inspiration to to keep pushing forward. So best of luck, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Okay. Sarah DeFelice, as I said, if Montpelier's going to come back, it's going to be on her the shoulders of people like her. She's not alone. She's not doing it alone. Uh, I'll tell you, the folks at Bear Pond Books, you know, they they are literally book by book putting the books back on the shelves in alphabetical order, I might add. And the staff is there. And, and this is going on shop by shop. So, you know, duck in, give them a wave, buy them a brownie, buy them a box of cookies, whatever. Uh, and, and when the time comes, uh, go in there. Uh, make a purchase and then round up. You know, if it's $25.62, ticket up to 27 That's our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Sarah Copeland Hansis, Bob Nay, Ann Wallace Allen, and Sarah DeFelice. The show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. You can listen anytime. And I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays as a reminder. You can find me KevinKEllis.com, where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, just like Sarah DeFelice is. And I have my own podcast called Conflict of Interest. I'll be back Wednesday of next week to go back on the road to yet another town in our series of telling the stories of how the rains and flooding affected central Vermont. My goal, Harry's Hardware in Cabot and the Den for some craft beer uh, we're trying to make that happen. It's not locked in yet, but we'll we'll keep you up to date. As always, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation, my garden, everything else on my mind and yours. Our show's produced by me, but engineered today by the great Greg Titus of the Mad River Valley. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.